Hi everybody, welcome back to the Babbling Bearded Biker podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, and here comes this episode. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Babbling Bearded Biker podcast. So first of all, I just want to say, I check my numbers, and apparently I've had over 244 listeners. I don't think I know that many people, personally, to be honest. So I just want to say thank you for joining in, uh, listening in. And of that 244, I've had 139 in 30 days. I mean, that's just an absolutely astounding number. Like I said, I don't think I know that that many people personally anyway. So I'm quite happy that people are listening in. I'm quite happy that people are taking time to listen to me. And there is options to send me a tip if you really want to keep all this going. So that's my, that's my shameless plug for money. So anyway... So on this episode, I'm going to be talking about something that I am extremely passionate about, and that's the NHS, National Health Service. So I'm just going to go through the history, just what it was, what it is for people listening overseas, so they know they know what it is, because there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And, you know, the NHS has been my life for the past 12 years, and it's something that I'm extremely, extremely passionate about, and on the flip side, extremely worried about where it's going at the moment. So it was formed on the 5th of July in 1948. And one of the people who who made the NHS was a Labour Member of Parliament called Anurin Bevin, whose nickname was Nye for some reason, no idea why. But he said, he said this, on the 5th of July we start together the new National Health Service. It has not had an altogether trouble-free gestation. There have been understandable anxieties, inevitable in so great and novel an undertaking. Nor will there be an overnight any miraculous removal of our more serious shortages of nurses and others and of modern replanned buildings and equipment. But the sooner we start, the sooner we can try together to see these things and to secure improvements we all want. My job is to give you all the facilities, resources and help I can and then to leave you alone as professional men and women to use your skill and judgment without hindrance. Let us try to develop that partnership from now on. So he he came up with the idea for the National Health Service. He piloted it. He as from what I'm aware it was a cross-party cross-party um idea to get this National Health Service. Now you've got to remember in 1948, it was what, a couple of years after the Second World War, there was thousands, thousands dead, injured, there was um, war, in, war injuries, some horrible amputations, burns, PTSD in the troops, PTSD in the civilians, and you know, that the health service they had at the time, I mean, if you speak to anyone who was around at that time, your grandparents, which I've spoke to quite a few older patients who I've looked after, who have told me what it was like before the NHS. And it's, it's quite scary thinking that. I think that before this free at the point of care, that you, you just kind of winged it. And as as far as these people, these patients have told me, if you couldn't afford a couple of bob for the doctor, then it was tough. And something I fear, which may be coming back, but anyway, that's 
that's later on in the show. So, 1948, there was still rationing in place. People were still only allowed certain amounts of food. Um, there were shortages, and there was rampant illnesses, childhood illnesses, that now we take for granted. Chickenpox, you know, could make people really ill, and, you know, polio was still around, scurvy, all the old, old um, illnesses, which we now look at and think, oh, yeah, that's that's gone now. But at the time, it was still about, it was still about, and the numbers are quite astounding on how many how many illnesses, how many people died from these illnesses, which we now take for granted. Like a, a good example is polio. Um, I've met a handful, not many people, who had polio when they were kids, and they've pretty much lost use of their legs, and they've been like that all their life. Um, but in 1956, the NHS rolled out a polio vaccination which everybody has now, I believe. I believe it's in the childhood vaccines. And that stopped it. That stopped it after, I think, about 10 years. Everybody was vaccinated. Polio was essentially eradicated. Same with smallpox and other other diseases, which, like I said, which now we look at and think, oh, yes, there's been a little outbreak here, a little outbreak there. But back in the 50s and you know, the late 50s, that was rampant and it was killing people because we didn't know how to deal with it. And that on its own is amazing because a lot of people who are around today would not be around if it wasn't for the NHS, wasn't for the National Health Service. And that's something that I'm proud to be part of, you know, even though I wasn't obviously a twink, I wasn't even a twinkle of my granddad's eye at that time. I, you know, I'm proud to be part of this organisation. Um, I mean, moving along with the time to 1960, the Royal College of Nursing allowed its first male nurses in. Now, I'm not a nurse. I'm a senior healthcare assistant. I'm mistaken for a nurse quite a lot. Um, and my work as nearly every other healthcare assistant is because they see someone in uniform, they immediately think nurse or doctor. But moving with the times, male nurses are, you know, normally orderlies. Before before this started, they were just orderlies or porters or security. But like I said, 1960, they allowed male nurses to actually get into the Royal College of Nursing, which allowed them to be seen as medical professionals. I mean, obviously, during the war, you've got medics and orderlies. But the the misconception was that if you're male, you're a doctor. If you're female, you're a nurse. That's not the case. That has been the case for a long time. Unfortunately, that is still something that's, which is still around. Um, in 1961, the oral contraceptive came out, and unfortunately, it's taken to this very day to make it so you don't have to see a doctor, you just get it over the counter, which I think is fantastic. Um, but that was that was introduced as part of the NHS in 1961. Unfortunately, with that, we had the formaldehyde uh, disaster. 
for those who don't know what it is, it was a anti-sickness that was given to pregnant women. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of it. It's just what I've what I've learned, and what it did, it affected the child in the womb. It crossed the uh, placenta, and it led to a lot of birth defects, um, missing arms, hands, fingers, and um, uh, learned disabilities, and all sorts of horrid, horrid stuff. But we've learned from that for a lot of medication we have learned from the thermaldehyde disaster. And that's something that that is always in the back of anybody's mind when they think medication, always, especially with pregnant women. So if I, if I go through the full history of the NHS, I'll be here for bloody hours. So, I mean, fast forward to 1998, I was eight years old. And they brought in the NHS Direct, which was the forerunner for the, as we now know, the 111 service. Now, NHS Direct, I remember, you ring them up, say, I've got this issue, and I go, okay, we'll book you an appointment for your GP, or go to your pharmacist, or take some paracetamol, you'll be fine. Yeah, it, you know, a lot of, a lot of um, minor issues were dealt with over the phone and with the pandemic we've gone back to that and I mean I have a lot of a lot of people come in say I tried to get into my GP but try to get my GP but, but I'm, I'll come on to that in a minute but I think that's a brilliant service I mean especially first-time parents I mean even even me I mean if you listen to my earlier podcast you know I've got three three daughters but I mean, first-time parents, any little, any little sniffle, and you think, "Oh my God, something absolutely drastically wrong here." But with the NHS Direct service, you would have somebody literally on the other end of the phone who you could talk to, and they could reassure you, or they could tell you how to deal with it, or whether you needed urgent medical assistance. And like I said, that was a forerunner for the current one-one-one service. Now, moving quite rapidly forward. Um, you've got the Labour Party under to- Tony Blair, who took over in '97, I believe it was, and that's when things started to go a little bit wrong, should we say? So we had the induction of privatisation. Um, where I currently work, the building is not owned by the NHS; it's owned by a private company on something called PFI, which means the NHS pays rent at an extortionate amount. And we're literally paying off interest. Um, I mean, you're talking billions and billions by the end of it. And that's only one place. I mean, there's plenty of hospitals which are the same. And we're paying an extortionate amount in renting a building, essentially, from this company. Um, obviously, not going to name the company or where I work. Um, and that's just really hit the NHS and hit the the funding for it and that was that was Tony Blair's Labour government who started that in 2000 Um, and then with Gordon Brown's Gordon Brown's uh, became the Prime Minister that's when funding for the NHS started to fall and fall dramatically I started with the NHS in 2010 and there was issues when I started and that was that was 12 years ago 
and the issues have got worse and worse and worse. Um, I mean, I don't really need to mention COVID, but COVID's been a big part of making the cracks in the NHS bigger, a lot, a lot bigger. And we've had many issues with the pandemic, with mismanagement of the government by the government. Um, I mean, we all remember Boris Johnson shaking hands with COVID patients, saying, "Yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm going to shake hands. I'm not wearing a mask." Yada yada yada, and then getting COVID himself. But you know, by the by. So, I mean, what what has a pandemic done to the NHS as a whole? Um, I mean, sickness in NHS staff is massive, absolutely massive. And even though two years down the line, we are still facing the challenges that have been brought by this pandemic and, unfortunately, the mismanagement of it. Um, Yes, I am critical of the government and I have every right to be, as does everybody. It's I'm not going to say it's human rights, but... I mean, technically, it's freedom of speech. And this this whole pandemic has been absolutely mismanaged and could be managed a hell of a lot better. Um, I mean, a simple fact that day in, day out, we are conflicting information from the government. Yes, you can wear masks here. No, you can't wear masks there. And we, d- we didn't know. And with the pandemic... we. We still don't know about this virus. Coronavirus, its type of coronavirus, which is sort of like the umbrella term, has been around for, for decades. You, you, can get, you can get coronavirus in dogs, but that's never been transmissible to humans. But obviously, allegedly, someone ate a bat in China or something. I don't know. That, that's by the by. Um, so it crossed into, into human and then, then it skyrocketed, Wuhan, China lockdowns, and it came over to the UK. And just a shout out to my sister, Charlie. Um, she's one of the first nurses to look after COVID patients in the in the UK. So proud of you for that, Charlie, up in Newcastle. Um, I digress. But I mean, it's opened opened up. A, I mean, if you will, a massive can of worms. And it, it it was scary. It was a scary time for everybody involved in the health service. It was a scary time for people at home who were on lockdown, but it was doubly scary for us. Um, I I um I was terrified. I'm not going to lie. I was absolutely terrified. We didn't know what this was. We just knew that people coming in and they were bloody poorly with it because people are so scared not to come into hospital to catch COVID when they got COVID and when they realised, actually, I better get myself off and get myself sorted, it was too late and they they were really, really poorly. And you had staff who were absolutely exhausted. And I know a lot of the people listening to this are my colleagues, which thank you very much for tuning in. Um, but if you've never been in that position where you were wearing full PPE. So at the time of the first wave, because we weren't 100% on the transmission, 
we were wearing enhanced PPE. So that's, you're talking a visor, uh, FFP3 mask. I had to shave my beard off, which I was really not happy with because I love my love having a beard. Um, and I look about 12, a fat 12-year-old when I take it off. Um, and, you know, we were wearing these things and we couldn't take them off. We had to don them and doff them in a proper procedure. So we were wearing essentially full gowns, mask, visors, gloves, two two pairs of gloves, one on, on the inside, one on the outside. And we we were terrified because we didn't know how it would be transferred. I mean, would we still get it? And there's there people who did. I mean, our hands were red raw from the amount of hand washing and hand sanitizer. There was pressure sores on the faces from where the masks were. I got one on my nose or the startings of one. Um, we had to split our department into two, into a red area and a yellow area. We had staff really poorly. We lost one of our nurses, Estrella. Um, hell of a nurse, hell of a person, and such a shame that we lost her. Um, and, you know, it, it was a scary time. It still is a scary time. We're still battling COVID. I mean, luckily we understand it a bit better. And with the vaccination, that's helped tenfold. But at that time... We had staffing issues because people who were, otherwise they were fine to work, but they were clinically vulnerable from COVID. They, If they got it, they could potentially die. I had uh, colleagues with knackered immune systems from chemo or knackered immune systems from autoimmune diseases, um, older, high BMIs. You know, there's loads of reasons why people would be vulnerable. Asthma is a good one. And it was just an awful, awful time for us. And it's still going on. And there's still stressors. And people, I think, um, counsellors and therapists are going to be rubbing their hands with glee because there's going to be a massive epidemic of staff primarily frontline staff who have been literally at the forefront of this, who have got deep-seated issues. I mean, you could almost say complex PTSD. Um, From this, PTSD doesn't just apply to watching people get blown up in, in war zones. It does apply to trauma in your life. And... You know, we've, we we had that. We, we had trauma. It's a different style of trauma, but it's still trauma. Um, literally watching people struggle to breathe and knowing we can't do a damn thing about it. And people who are otherwise healthy, you know, who are young, healthy, etc. No, no medical issues as such. And they were getting really poorly. Had quite a few up in intensive care, young twenty, thirty-year-olds who were otherwise fit, well, healthy, and that and that was scary for us. That was very scary because it could have been one of us. And unfortunately, like I said, with with Australia, it was one of us. So, 
in 2021, the COVID vaccination um, programme managed to vaccinate over 50 million people. 50 million. I've had all my vaccines. I had COVID not long ago. I've had worse hangovers. But I know that if I'd caught COVID before, I'd had my vaccinations, it would have completely knocked me out and it could have could have made me extremely unwell. And, you know, that's scary. It still does to some people. It's how they react to it. But, I mean, we had it in the house. I got it. Two out of three girls got it. Wife got it. And, you know, it, it made me feel like crap for a few days. And I was fine. Absolutely fine. I had no... No long-lasting effects, as far as what I can see. And, I mean, with the vaccinations, something which I'm very upset about is the anti-vaccination people. If you don't want to take the vaccine, don't bloody take it. It's completely up to you. But don't start calling my colleagues Nazis or scum, or say that, you know, we pin people down, inject them with the vaccine, because that ain't going to happen. That's not going to happen at all. I mean, you can't force someone to have an injection. It's that simple. But the way these people speak, the problem is they're a minority, but they're a very loud minority and a vocal minority. And I think I've mentioned it in a previous podcast, is there has been death threats against all NHS staff, equating us to literal Nazis who were, quote, only doing their job. Now, the fact that I took my, took my, took all three of my daughters for their COVID jabs, they're old enough now so they can have it, and I did speak to them about it, told them what it was, let them make an informed choice. Yes, they're kids, but they are, you know, they are still people. And they all wanted it, and they said that to the per- said that to the people doing the vaccinations. Now, when I walked into the uh, vaccination centre in our local city hall, there was four security in there, four security for a vaccination centre. How bloody ridiculous is that? And I said to one of the guards, "I went, oh, a bit heavy-handed, mate." And he went, "No," he said, "There's been lots of threats made against the staff." and this area, this vaccination hub. And I was astounded. Why on earth would anybody threaten staff? If, I don't I don't understand it. I really don't. And unfortunately, a lot of celebrities have come out with anti-vax nonsense. And it is nonsense. I mean, it goes back to the um, vaccines causing autism malarkey. Now, that paper... That was um, that was released was actually rescinded, and the doctor who wrote it was actually struck off because they did some more research and actually found that it, it didn't happen. It happened in maybe one or two people out of millions who've had it. Now there is vaccine injuries; people do react badly to medication. You can react badly to a paracetamol, and. You know, I'm not disputing that it doesn't happen because I know that sometimes it does. But it's a very, very small minority. But these anti-vaxxers are rabid, absolutely rabid. 
I've had someone. I, I did a did a speech um, at a NHS rally uh, last year, and I almost knocked someone out. And you know, most people know him. I'm quite a placid guy, but this guy kept on saying to me, "Oh, have you got your vaccination?" I said, "Yeah, I got two. I said, "I'll be getting the next one soon as well, probably." And he went, "Well, you shouldn't get it. You shouldn't get it. I think you're an idiot. I think you're a twat." I said, "Okay, that's your choice, mate. You crack on." And he went, "Yeah, your friend who died, i.e., Estrella." I said, "Does she have a vaccination? Is that what killed her?" And I, I nearly laid him out there and then told him if he didn't back off, I was going to break his face. And um, he just kept on pushing it, kept on pushing it. So I gave him one more warning to look. If you do not piss off right now, I will rearrange your face with my fist. He got the hint then and walked away. But this guy had gone through speeches, gone through a a walk around the city centre with our placards and with our megaphones and then decided to start saying, oh, I know, I'm going to start, you know, talking about my anti-vax bollocks. And I did... I did go to another uh, an anti-vax rally in the city centre with my camera, and I had to walk away from it. The stuff they were sh- bloody saying, absolute bullshit. Like one of them, the this guy said, "I am a registered medical professional. I am an osteopath." Okay, that's not a medical doctor. That's not a research doctor. That's not that's somebody's read who's done a lot of YouTube and a lot of a lot of deep, dark web research, which basically means fuck all. And he was saying nine out of ten ambulances out of ten day and E have vaccine injuries. I pissed myself laughing. Absolutely pissed myself laughing. And if you look at my uh, look at my Facebook photography photography page, which is the bearded bike photography, you'll see some of the pictures from the anti-vax rally and they were wearing Stars of David on their arms like um, like the Jews did. Jews were made to do during the Second World War in occupied Germany and occupied France and any occupied area that the Germans occupied, so about 80% of Europe. Um, and the signs they were holding equating vaccines to medical rape. I mean, how can you equate something to rape? I mean, that's just disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. But like I said, these people are absolutely rabid. And we've had them in where I work. And there's been quite a few of them that have come in with COVID over the over the pandemic, feeling absolutely awful. And we've had to, you know, either send them up to intensive care or onto a ward on oxygen and they've been asking to have the vaccine and we've had to say to them it's too late it's too late mate you can't have it because if you don't have it have the vaccine you probably you may come out the other side of this but if you have the vaccine now it probably will kill you so i'm sorry but and it kind of makes them realize that they've been strung along almost and that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing at all. We need a, There needs to be something to stop these people from spreading the bullshit. 
spreading a nonsense, you know, saying that, you know, threatening NHS staff. I mean, why would you threaten somebody whose sole job it is to look at, is to look after the people? Seriously. And what, I mean, one of the things, um, moving away from anti-vaxxers now, I got into a bit of a Twitter spat with Kirsty Old. Kirsty Olsop, she's a TV person, I don't bloody know. And she was saying that's, that not allowing visitors in hospitals is disgusting and it it's, shouldn't happen. And the amount of comments that were saying, oh, NHS staff just jobs worse, I want to see my relative, etc., etc., etc. I get it, I do get it. And um, you know, I do, I do get you want to be with your relative, and we will allow that as much as we can. The problem is, if you've got say thirty-five patients on a ward, each patient has a single relative. That's another thirty-five people, and if all those relatives all at the same time went to the two nurses, one healthcare assistant working on that ward, for you know how Aunt Sally is doing then the staff aren't going to be able to get any jobs done, ain't going to be able to look after the bedbound patients, do OBS, do medication, do injections. You know, they're not going to be able to do any of that because they're dealing with relatives. And the problem is, on the best part, relatives are, you know, they'll quite happily sit there and, you know, you go in, say hello, chat to them, keep them up to date as much as you can. But again, there's just this minority who just take the piss and unfortunately it's the way of the world at the moment i mean i've i've had um relatives get very angry with me when i said i'm really sorry but can we only have at most two people here when you've got a family of six who are all crowded around a bed space bugging a nurse um making a load of noise I mean, we've had literal families turn up to A&E with, um, with their relative. Their relative walks in, but this family's like, oh, they're really poorly, and then you've got five people trying to tell a triage nurse about this one patient. Patient's just sitting there, and it's like, okay, right, you need to you need to leave. Well, yeah, we'll need to tell you this, need to No, you need to leave. And but <laughs> we don't have enough space for patients never mind relatives. I mean, I think they should bring back visiting times, an hour in the morning, hour in the afternoon. If the patient is that unwell, sort of like end-of-life care, then yeah, they should have as many relatives as they want. They should be in a side room and being seen by a palliative care team. They should have all this in place. But unfortunately, we don't have the beds. And that... That is something which has got worse and worse over the past 12 years I've worked there. And it's something that people don't understand until they've worked it or seen it for themselves, how busy we are. Normally working understaffed due to sickness. Um, you know, we're working our arses off to the point of burnout. And you come home, you know, you're sit in front of the telly and you scroll through Twitter and you see NHS are crap, NHS are wankers, 
NHS staff are Nazis. It's demoralising, really demoralising. And many times I've sat there and said to my wife, what the fuck am I doing in my life? Why am I doing this? Why am I, you know, putting myself in for a mere £10.95 a fucking week, month, hour, £10.95 an hour? Why, why am I doing it? Why am I pulling extra shifts to make ends meet when when all I do is open Facebook and get bloody abuse for it? And, you know, I mean, going, I, I ride my motorbike to and from work and going past, I go past a, a, a uh, an off-license every single way on the way home and there's a sandwich board outside and I'll always remember it. And... Awful shift, absolutely awful shift. We had patients everywhere. We had ambulances. And I went past a sandwich board and there was a big sign there. And it said, my mum spent seven hours on the floor waiting for an ambulance. Right, okay. And I'm sure if I read that rag, the Evening Daily New, Eastern Daily Press, I'm sure if I read that, that would have been said, it, you know, in not so many words, but... Would have been the ambulance's fault, would have been the paramedic's fault, would have been the A&E's fault, would have been the hospital's fault, would have been the NHS fault. Full stop. Full stop. But, I mean, we don't have the staff, we don't have the money. It's that simple. I mean, sickness, the um, average public sector sickness for April 2021 was 2.7% off sick at any one time in the nhs that was nearly double at 5.14 percent now if you think about it that's quite a big jump of sickness and if you think about it that was uh, april 2021 so we were in just coming out of the first wave and that was that was hard because a lot of staff unless unless they've been in pandemics before were struggling and we still are struggling we still are struggling so, so why why we show so short staffed? There's been a thirty two percent decrease in nurses going to uni in the years two thousand sixteen seventeen and two thousand and eighteen two thousand nineteen. So the nursing bursary, which equated to I think today's money, would be about twenty thousand pound a year, which is a which is a livable wage. Just was removed in two thousand seventeen. So you'd go to uni, you'd, you'd get a a loan, a student loan, you'd, you'd pay through the nose for that. I mean, a lot of nurses now, when before they even start earning, already owe nearly £30,000 in student loans. Um, as a guy I used to work with, he now works in one of the wards, he was a bank healthcare assistant. And what he would do was work solidly six days a week. So he'd do like four days at uni, and then three night shifts. And he, he was knackered. He'd have one day off and then back to uni. Placement. They don't get paid for placement. They don't get paid for it. And in some cases, student nurses are used as healthcare assistants, which, you know, is wrong. They, they're there to learn not to do a healthcare assistant job, although it does help, you know, healthcare, being a healthcare assistant, that does help. But they, they're there to learn not to do my job, essentially, and, and not get paid for it. I mean, I think they should be paid the same as me if they're on placement. 
you know, and that's that's what what the issue is. Nursing is not a attractive job anymore. It was, it used to be, not anymore. Because you've got an bursary, you start your working life. A lot of the students coming up now are very young, like early 20s, and their first proper paid job, and they already start at 30, 40 grand in debt. Doctors, well, they're like 60, 70 grand in debt. And they they work 40, 50 hours a week to try and, you know, try and make ends meet and pay their thing as well, pay their... Um, pay the debts off. And I mean, that's that's wrong. It's massively wrong. And the only way I think they could remedy that is to bring the bursary back and actually pay people what they deserve. I mean, obviously, myself included. But we work our asses off, no matter what part of the NHS you work in. I mean, GPs. So GPs are a bit of a bone of contention. Now... GP is a private practice. They're under the NHS, but they're still private practice. They earn a lot of money, apparently. Don't know. I've not ever spoken to a GP about his wages. I feel that's a bit rude. But they're, in some cases, they are seeing patients if they deem it necessary, if you can get past the receptionist. Um, I mean, I sent an e-consult about my daughter two weeks ago. And... Got any consult back saying, Yep, we'll see you in a week. Boom, sorted. Face to face appointment, 20 minutes, everything's going on the right track. Every All referrals are done. Happy days. I've not seen a GP over the pandemic, but I haven't needed to. I had medication review and for my mental health problems, which are all documented in the first couple of episodes. Um, and it was all done over the phone. I don't know if people want to see a GP face-to-face or they're not happy with being seen over the phone. Some things you can't diagnose over the phone, obviously, like chest infections and such. But a lot of things can be dealt with over the phone. And I think phone call is the way forward. I mean, obviously, if you're deemed for face-to-face, and fine. But a lot of people say, oh, I, was, I was 20th in the queue, so I gave up and came came here to A&E. Right, okay. You're gonna you've got a seven and a half hour wait. Take a seat. What do you mean seven and a half hours? Can't wait here that long, but you but what? I don't I don't get it. We get that a lot. Um so so moving on to privatization, twenty five percent of funds is for private companies. Now, there is some private companies who do cracking work, um, agency staff as well. Now, there's a lot of bad feeling towards agency staff because of their wages. Um, There is a couple of companies who charge extortionate amounts, but the nurses get probably about 30, 40 quid an hour, but it goes on what their skill set is. So you've got an intensive care nurse, they're on 50 quid an hour easily. Now that'd be bloody lovely if I could, but it's not as clear. It's not as clear cut as that because the company I'm thinking of, I've spoken to a few people about it, and they said, "Well, they may call you at quarter to seven and say, can you be in London for nine o'clock, or can you be in this hospital or that hospital, or you know, and you've got to drop everything 
to run over to that hospital to do a shift. And that's why they're paid so much. And the the way I see it is, yes, that's an issue. There should be a cap on that. I completely agree. But a lot of places, a lot of hospitals, a lot of wards, a lot of departments, they absolutely live off agency staff. Absolutely live off them. I mean, we have we don't have that many agency staff, but we have them, and you know what? They're worth their weight in bloody gold. They really are. They're extra staff who help us. You know, I'm quite friendly with all of them, to be honest. And who wouldn't do the same job for more money? I mean, I would. I mean, if someone said to me, well, you can either do work for the NHS for £10 an hour or work for this agency for £20 an hour, I'll give you two guesses where I'm bloody going. But, I mean, back, I mean, with privatisation, I mean, a lot. there is a lot of privatisation going on and there's a lot of backroom deals and stupid amounts of money changing. Stupid amounts of money changing hands. I mean, you're talking billions and billions in contracts. I mean, one of the most notable ones is the uh, Hitchinbrook Hospital in 2009. Um, I mean, that was Circle who attempted to run that, or should I say run into a ground, um, which, as far as I was aware, used to be called Berry Housing, which was a housing, a, a social housing enterprise. And what they did is they bought this hospital and said, yeah, we'll run it. And the CQC went over, had an absolute meltdown, put it into special measures because of the the care was so poor. Now, I haven't actually read the report because they'll probably just make me angry. But, I mean, they probably had some really good staff work in there, but they may not have had the medication that they needed. They may not have had the equipment. The staffing levels may have been crap. The hospital building may have been falling apart. They handed it back to the NHS in 2015. I mean, that just says it all, really, doesn't it? I mean, we need to renationalise the NHS because you've got 80 years here, and I, for one, don't think it'll last another 10 if these things carry on. I imagine by 2030, we will have an American-style healthcare, and that is... A nightmare, absolute nightmare. I mean, I was watching TikTok the other day, uh, today actually, as a matter of fact, and there was a TikTok that this American girl had done. She'd been out on the lash and she had a splitting headache when she woke up, was vomiting. She thought, oh, hangover. She kept vomiting, headache got worse, da 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 da. Took her to A&E or their ER, gave her some fluids, some anti sickness, booed her out still with this splitting headache after a couple of bags of fluids, which anybody knows, a couple of bags of fluids, you're normally all right. Um, she sat on it for a few days, sat on it for a few days, said to her dad, you know, I'd need to go back to A&E, back to ER because I'm really struggling. Um, she passed out upstairs. He took her in. They ordered a CT scan, scan of a red, and it was cancelled by the insurance because they didn't deem it necessary to do a CT scan. Now, splitting headache, extreme vomiting, I mean, you know, worst case scenario, it's a bleed. Let's be completely honest. But because the insurance wouldn't pay out, they didn't do it. 
I mean, the whole point of the NHS is free at the point of care. And that's what Nybevan envisioned it as. So no matter what people earn, or if they earn anything, they get treated exactly the same as a multi-billionaire. And that is something which I will really struggle with and probably end my career in the NHS if we start treating people on what they can afford. That is something that I, I just cannot do. I mean, you can have a homeless person having a heart attack or a billionaire next to the homeless person having a heart attack with a stubbed toe. I don't care how much money people have got, and I know my colleagues wouldn't either. We'll go to the most serious case first, Well, you know, and that is that is something which I very, feel very strongly about. And I, I fear that we are heading that way. We are heading towards American-style healthcare where I don't know the exact numbers, but a couple of hundred thousand people in America are bankrupt because they can't afford medical bills. I mean, you just got to look at Breaking Bad. I mean, I watched the first bit of a season. I just, just wasn't for me. I couldn't really get into it. But the story, if anybody who hasn't seen it, is this teacher gets diagnosed with lung cancer and then... Turns out his insurance, his his type of insurance, won't pay the bill, the the medical bill. So he goes to selling methamphetamines and cooking meth to pay for hospital care for his for his cancer. I mean, it's laughable, absolutely laughable, but it is real. I mean, there's been reports, quite a few reports, of people having heart attacks in America. And, you know, getting stabbed or, you know, getting injured or whatever. And saying to people, don't call an ambulance, call an Uber or call a Lyft. Because I can't afford the ambulance bill. I mean, that that is crazy. Absolutely bloody crazy. Because you can't afford it, they're not going to take you. I mean, what sort of fucked up world is that? That you're having a heart attack. You've got, you know chest pain radiating down your left arm and into your jaw and you know, feeling of impending doom. You've got classic signs of heart attack, but there you are worrying how much it's going to bloody cost. That should not happen. That should not happen at all. And it's scary to think that we are very close to that becoming a reality. But unfortunately, that is what this government wants. They want a privatised health system. They want people to be treated on their, their worth and such, their weight, how much they make. I mean, the the way that they squander money left, right and centre, I mean, track and trace, track and trace, £37 billion pounds on a system which did not work. And that £37 billion pounds could have paid off the NHS deficit. It would have um, wrote off the deficit uh, twice. I mean, the only reason um, 13.4 billion debt was written off was because of COVID in April 2020. April 2020. And that was just because of COVID. There was no, you know, there was no other reason. And so this thirty-seven billion, which had gone on, well, track and trace, 
was just I didn't really understand what they did. I mean, we used we used track and trace when we got COVID, and it didn't really didn't seem to do anything. We sent us sent the samples in, we filled out the paperwork, and that was it. I don't know if it's to do statistics or what, but anyway, it's by the by. Um, I mean, you've got the PPE scandal as well, which you know led to us you using single use stuff more than once, which kind of goes against the whole single use thing. Um, so I mean, make that of you will make make that of you will. It's late. It's late. Um, so yeah, so we were using gear which was designed literally for one use throw away one use throw away we had to use that multiple times same patient but multiple times because we just didn't have the ppe for it and that caused again that caused more issues and it just seems that this government's doing everything they can not to not to help the nhs they they want it privatized because then they can all greedily rub their hands together and stop bidding on services stop breaking down services I mean, we use a lot of private ambulance services. I mean, again, it's not the staff. You know, they do a cracking job. They're helping fill gaps. But it shouldn't. there shouldn't be gaps. There should, you know, there should be enough money in, in the government to do this. Um, I mean, I'm probably going to get some hate for this, but the Jubilee, £2 billion that cost for street parties and events and flypasts and all that two billion pounds i mean to put it into put it in perspective a newly qualified nurse earns about 24 grand a year 24000 pound a year now that is before tax before national insurance before deductions like your pension, your union fees. Then you've got, on top of that, you've got the fuel costs, electric costs. I mean, my electric cost went up to double what it is. My wages haven't. My wages are still, still the same, still on the same as I was two years ago. And although it's not a bad wage, to be honest, it's not keeping up with inflation. And... It seems like a lot of staff are voting with their feet. I mean, I could get 30 grand a year as an assistant manager in Aldi. And although it's still a stressful job, still a, a hard job, but it's a different sort of hard job. I mean, you don't have the same sort of pressures. You're not, you know, looking at a patient thinking, oh dear, they don't look very good. Quick, do this, do that, quick, this, do this, do that. You know, it's a different sort of stress. But I mean, they're paid appropriately for what they do we're not we're still not and unfortunately i don't think we ever will be and like i said we're going to an american style of healthcare. and i mean what what can we do about it what what can we do each time there is a general election the nhs is almost always at the forefront always at the forefront of what of what you know what they argue about, of what they talk about in the Prime Minister's questions and 
They heckle each other at the Houses of Parliament, make some like children, bloody absolute children. Um, but every single one is always, we're going to do this for the NHS, we're going to do that for the NHS, yada, 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 yada. As far as I'm concerned, none of them have done it. None of them have even come close to doing what they said they're going to do. And my best advice is look at people's voting records. My local MP, if you look at They Vote For You, is a website, it'll have... They they vote for you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the name of the website. Sorry, they work for you dot com. And what you do is you put in your postcode, that tells you who your MP is, and that tells you every single vote they have done. Now my local MP was canvassing a few weeks ago. She didn't come round here, which is probably a good thing. Um and no, she was canvassing and I got a letter through the door from from her campaign saying I was just gonna work on the NHS, yada 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 yada. And I looked back at her voting record on there. And her voting record is absolutely diabolical to me, to me. So she's constantly voted against pay rise for NHS staff, constantly voted against uh, same-sex marriage, voted for um, refugees being removed, voted for a lot of things which I do not agree with. And from, from the voting record, you can see what the type of people they are. I mean, if they consistently vote for the NHS and vote for people's rights, then I'll probably say they're a good person to go with if they vote against the NHS and vote against people's rights. They're probably not the best people to to do it. I mean, I personally, I have absolutely no time for this government. Um, party gates, when Boris Johnson had his tea and wine or whatever in the um, 10 Down Street on that day, where we had that, I was working a full day shift in Red Resource and, you know, full PPE, the whole lot. And, yeah, that's, you know, that's just not... You, you can't even can't even make it up. I mean... And then you've got people like Michael Fabricant saying, oh, yeah, nurses had a glass of wine at the end of shift. No, we bloody didn't. We showered... And went home to a wife or husband and kids. Or, you know, home to the cat or whatever. We we left as quick as we could. And, you know, we didn't sit around having bloody cheese and wine in the staff rooms. Because drinking on hospital properties are not allowed. And I can categorically say for where I work, that did not happen. Nor would it ever happen. Because... Although you have to love your job to work in that environment, um, as soon as we're done, we needed to get out of there. And I've seen that spiel be put out a few times now that no one's no one's checked up on the NHS staff having, you know, having um, wine and wine and uh, cheese at the end of a shift. Don't be so bloody ridiculous, man. Because we knew exactly what this virus was. We knew how dangerous it was. We didn't understand it, but we knew it was dangerous. So for, I mean, at best count, there's two MPs that I know of 
the second one's name escapes me, who said this, and I think the absolute gall of them to say that. I mean, how ridiculous can you bloody be? So, so yeah, check the voting record of of the politicians before you put before you put your vote in. So that's that's my Babylon. Done nearly an hour. I'm pretty impressed with that. Normally I'm only about forty minutes. So yeah, thank you for tuning in, everybody. Uh, I just want to say categorically, I appreciate you guys listening. I do need feedback. I say at the end of every one, send me your feedback. If you think it's crap, tell me it's crap. If things good, tell me it's good. Yada yada yada. And also, all of these views are mine. They do not represent the organisation nor the hospital, nor the department that I work for. They are my personal opinions, and that way I won't get in trouble for what I've just said. So, as always, keep safe, look after each other, and for God's sake, don't vote for bloody Conservatives. Peace. Thank you everybody for tuning in and listening to me babble on. Your comments are all welcome and I appreciate you listening to me. Look after yourselves.